Okay, we are continuing in our study on how to read your Bible, but we've kind of moved into the section uh, a couple weeks back at uh, how to apply your Bible. Once you've read it, how do you then apply it? And um, one of the one of the rules of application, very simple that that we need to kind of put out there is your job when you're reading the Bible is to discover the application that is in the text. Your job is not to invent an application. Your job is not to come up with an application. Uh, there was a, a professor uh, at a Bible college uh, that one of the assignments that he used to give his students is to read a passage. He gave them a passage of scripture and then see how many applications they could come up with in that passage. So try to, and that's really an inappropriate thing. What we should be doing is reading the text, and there, if there is an application there, then appropriate it if it's with regard to us. So, what's the first rule of reading your Bible? Read it. Read it, read it, read it. So we've talked about that. Read it. In fact, reading is going to help you understand even how to apply the Bible. A lot of times people that want to apply, they pull a, a verse, they pull a phrase out of the Scripture, they read that phrase, oh, it sounds really great. And you say, did you ever read even the verse before that? No. Then you open the Bible and they're going, oh, oh my goodness. And it totally changes the flavor of the verse. Totally changes the meaning. You're thinking, so do you really want to ask for that? <laughs> do you really want to relate to that, that particular promise? No. Okay. And of course, as we've said, you don't need a fancy education to do this. But you do need to spend time reading this. And remember, the Bible was not written for highly educated, fancy people. It was written for, written for people like us, everyday people that can pick up a Bible, read it, and just think through that. And on top of that, though this is not a main part of the study today, because you, if you're a believer and you're born from above, God's regenerated you in the realm of your spirit, and you have the potential to comprehend these things in a way that an unsaved person this book is essentially closed to them, with the exception of the gospel. Okay, So, as we've looked at this, we've looked at three rules so far in terms of applying the Bible. Number one is you need to read or de determine who is the audience of the text. Who's the audience? Who's being written to? Are they, let's put it in simple terms, are they believers that are in Christ? That would only be believers from the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 to the present. Nobody was in Christ prior to that. That was something Christ promised would start the day he sent the Spirit. How about believers that are born from above? Again, that is something that began on the day of Pentecost when he sent the Spirit. Believers before that were not born from above. So you have some things going for you that other believers didn't. And so there's going to be some things for those believers, those Old Testament believers as an example, that they may be called upon that really don't apply to you in this way because you're a different kind of a person in that regard. After that, we have to ask the question, is the text specific to that audience or can it extend to others? Um, case in point, just ask, just throw this verse out <clears throat> in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, stop drinking just water. Go drink some pop. and No, no. If you keep reading, it says drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Apparently, Timothy had stomach problems. 
And we don't know if those stomach problems became came from bugs that were in the area because a lot of these people, they drank wine mixed in their water uh, to avoid, we have chlorinated water, right? We have, we have our wells tested and things like that to make sure there's not contamination. They didn't have that then. They mixed it with wine and that's one of the things that, that decontaminated their water. He tells Timothy, drink a little wine. Apparently Timothy had become a teetotaler so as not to offend other people. And Paul tells Timothy, I keep... <laughs> Tells Timothy, I hear you keep having stomach problems, do it. Does that extend to us? Not really. And not unless you've got a stomach issue and you're toughing it out and you don't want to take some medicine or whatever it is to get your stomach straightened out, then maybe that might apply to you. But uh, otherwise, it's not just a verse that we just take out and throw around. So it's just as an example, you'd have to be a very specific situation. And then the last one is we're asking, who are we? Who are we? Determine who we are. Do we match the, the audience up there? Do we match maybe uh, an extension of that audience? So when Paul writes to churches, in answer to that second question, is the text specific to that audience or to others? When it writes to churches, are, are, are we in that place? Are we part of the church? Well, if you're a believer in Christ, you are part of the church. Because the church are all the believers, no matter where they are whether they're meeting together or whether they're uh, not meeting together, they should be meeting together. You know, we're told not to give up on meeting, but some believers have. But they're still part of the church from God's point of view, okay, in all of that. So now we're going to move on to question number four, questions four. This question, uh, what is the audience's need? What is the need that the audience has? This is one of the other things. So if we're going to go back here and we're going to ask, Who's the audience? Then we want to, in reading a passage, go, well, what did they need? What was going on? And we're going to start with three questions right off the bat. What did Judah need? What did wives, or what do wives need? And what do husbands need? Now, we're looking at specific passages when we do each one of these. So we want to go to the book of Malachi. We want to go to the book of Malachi. And when you get there, go to chapter 3. And if you've been in church... Has, have, uh, has anybody ever heard this passage preached to church people in churches? I'm just curious. You, some of you don't even know what this is, this passage. Um, well, let's go to Ma uh, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, well, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. I've heard pastors preach this. I've heard lots of people preach this because, well, if you want to keep money flowing into the church so that you can pay bills or increase the pastor's salary. I don't know. I shouldn't say that. That's reading motives into it, why people might do this. But when they do that kind of thing, this is a passage they frequently go to. You're robbing God. If you don't give, you're robbing God. And then they're going to say, so bring the whole tithe in. And I had a discussion with a local pastor, not one here in town, okay, but a local pastor, that he, he could not believe that our church does not teach tithing. How, how in the world can, you, can, can the church function that way without teaching people to tithe? Well, there's a reason we don't teach people to tithe, and 
This is specific about Judah. Judah's need was that they were under God's curse. And the curse apparently, when it says in verse 10, or verse 10, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And I would understand that blessing from heaven when he says the windows of heaven, that he's talking about rain. Rain. Why did they need rain? Because they didn't have circles. They didn't have the irrigation project that goes on around here. And so they depended on rain to water their crops. And if they didn't have rain to water their crops, their crops didn't grow. They didn't perform well. These people were getting hungry. And that was one of the curses that God promised Israel way back under the law when he gave them the law. He says, if you don't obey these things, you're going to come into the curses. And one of them is your crops are going to do poorly. And eventually your forage is not good and your livestock doesn't do well. And so your fruit basket and your bread basket is not doing well. And pretty soon your kids aren't, are looking sickly and you and yourself aren't doing too well. All of that was part of the curse. And he says, it's because you guys are cheating. You guys aren't bringing your whole tithe to the storehouse. And the storehouse was at the temple. Now I want you to go to the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. I'm going to look at a couple passages in 2 Corinthians. And I don't think I put, I did put this up here. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I remember I, sh I shared this verse. Uh, I shared this verse with this particular pastor. Uh, I'll, I'll add his comment here in just a minute. We have right before this, we have, of course, the verse that pastors like to teach. It says, now I say this, he who sows sparingly shall reap sparingly, and who sows bountifully shall reap bountifully. But then he says in verse 7, each one then, even as he purposes or chooses ahead of time, is literally the idea, it's uh, the word to choose. To It's not the word for determination. As he chooses ahead of time in his heart. So each person, you give as you choose in your heart ahead of time. And I believe ahead of time, that means before you ever get to church, you ought to have settled in your mind. This is what he was talking for these people. You ought to have settled in mind. This is what you're going to give. You don't wait until you come here and then you listen to somebody in the church give you a plea. Dig deep, dig deep. When I was in college, I had to, for a class, I had to go to a church in Waterloo, Iowa, and I rode over with, with some other classmates, and we had to sit in this, in, in this church service, and they get everybody, the deacons get, the deacons come down, and they pick up every aisle, they stand there, and everybody in that aisle gets up, walks down around front, and the pastor and the board sat at the, a big table down front, with ice cream pails. That's what they had. They had three big ice cream pails. And everybody, as they walked by, shuffles by, and they drops their, drop their tithes and offerings because they made a big deal about that. And, uh, they, and it was a big church. We're talking probably 250 people. So it took a long time to get all those people escorted down front. But that means the pastor and the board could watch what everybody was dropping in the pails. And our teacher back at college then asked us when we got back, um, uh, did you go through twice? And we're like, what? He goes, well, once in a while, they will count the money up. And they didn't think that they got a, enough money that Sunday. They will get everybody out and they'll walk them through there again. And they'll, you know, then you got to dig deep, I guess, that second time. Anyway, um, but he says here, no, he, that, again, I, aside from that class and going to that church that one time, I've never experienced that. But I've sat and listened to pastors pour out their hearts to dig deep, dig deep like that. And you know what? We don't do that here at our church. 
We might share with you that there's a need. If the Lord wants you to give to that need, then give to the need. And that's what you're going to hear. But we're not going to say, dig deep. Because I want you to only do what, as Paul says, what you have purposed or chosen ahead of time in your heart. And then he says, not from grief. If it hurts you to give, then don't give. Because I think Josh made this comment in the last hour. It's not like God's up there going, man, my pocketbook, I've only got two bucks left in there. What are we, how am I going to, how am I going to get ministry done? Oh, people, you better give. God's not doing that. Giving is actually a way for you to participate in the ministry of grace and love to other believers. That's, that's the reason you should be giving. It's because God's giving you an opportunity to do it. But you shouldn't do it out of grief. If you're doing it out of grief, quit it. Cut it out. Just don't give. And get your attitude straightened out, I would also say. But on top of that, neither out of necessity. In other words, don't let people pressure you into giving. Don't let people pressure you into giving. Why? Because God loves a... This, this was the reason Josh was here. He loves a cheerful giver. And I would suggest the reason he says that it's love, and I'm not going to do this because it's not our main study today, but if you went to John 14, God, Jesus Christ told his disciples, you know what, when you keep that command and you love one another like I loved you, he says, I will manifest or show myself through you. And you know what? When you actually give with a right heart attitude, you get to see Christ live out his life and his love through you. You get to see the Father and the Son manifest something to you in that, through your life. And that's how they love you. It's not that they give you the warm fuzzies. They're actually showing something about their life through you. I also want to look back in chapter 8. I also want to look back in chapter 8, and I don't have this one. But chapter 8 and verse 12, because I want to look at one other matter about this on giving. Chapters 8 and 9 are two very strong passages on giving with regard to New Testament giving. Do you get the point in the last one? Giving is according to what you determine ahead of time. It's not a set amount that you have to give a tithe and then you give something. And that's exactly what I was told by this person. Well, that statement over there is only what you give after your tithe, what you determine to give after your tithe although the fact there's no tithing taught anywhere in the New Testament. Okay. And what was, a tithe? what was a tithe? What's that word that we just really love to talk? Tax. It was a tax. It was a tax that financed the temple and the priesthood. Now, there was also a part of that tax that also helped for those people that were very poor. Uh, we've looked at that in other studies. But 2 Corinthians... They had giving above the tithe, too. They did. Yes, they did. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, notice what the statement is that he makes here when he's talking about this and he's talking about another church. He says, for if the readiness is present, it is received according to what a person has, not according to what a person doesn't have. In other words, people could say, well, I want to give. I don't have anything to give, but I want to give. That doesn't count. It's you give out of what you have, and it's the readiness you have out of there. That's what counts for it. That's what he's saying. Because a person could go, when God blesses me, I'm giving. But he says, that's not the way you give. <laughs> we, it's always, easy to give, it's always easy, easy to give away what you don't have. But if you look at what you have and say, I want to give out of this. And this is, this is what, the way it's going to work. And I, we could teach a whole other thing on giving out of this passage right here because of what he says about the Macedonian church. But just keep in mind. Even these people in this, this readiness, this eagerness, 
it is in keeping with the with what we just looked at what they determine in their heart okay so what was Judah's need Judah's need was to bring the whole tithe in because they were under a curse do you know what if you don't give today there's not a curse God's not going to withhold rain now you might miss out on getting to see God manifest something through you in that situation so I would say that there's something you miss out on, but God's not going to withhold rain and he's not going to make your boss cut your pay or something like that because we're living under a system of grace and we give in keeping with grace, not by a principle that's required of us. Now, let's move on to the next one. We asked, what do wives need to do? Let's turn to Ephesians chapter five. Husbands, this is a good one. Mark this down. You're going to want to keep this in your back pocket so you can remind that wife. No, no, no. Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking in verse 21 about all believers submitting to one another. In very simple terms, you all have spiritual gifts. If you're a believer, you have a spiritual gift. And you're going to minister that gift to others. And you need to submit to other people using their spiritual gift in your life. That's God's plan. That includes me. I have to submit to God's plan that he uses other people in my life. I'm not out there as a pastor. It's like, well, you all have to submit. I don't have to. No. All the believers in the church submit to one another. But then he's going to talk about a special point of submission, and that's in verse 22. Wives, then, to their own husbands. Women, you don't have to submit to me. Not in this way. You might, in terms of my spiritual gift, or in terms of another man's spiritual gift, but not in what he's talking about with the husband. That is a unique area of submission that you have to him. I'm going to come back and hit on that in just a second, come back what I really think kind of the point that he's getting at. <clears throat> but you do that as to the Lord. Why? Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife. And by the way, being head of the wife does not mean he's the master and in charge. Jim did an excellent study where he demonstrated the difference between headship and lordship. Headship means, husbands, you're responsible for caring and looking out for her well-being. That's different than being the boss, which is not what head means. Okay? And... Uh, Talk to Jim, get notes from that. Maybe he'll want to do that study with you again if you need that. But for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Is, is, is he saying here that Christ is the boss? He's the Lord of the church. He's the boss, in a, or he's the head in a different way. He's caring for. In fact, in the context here, it's all about Christ caring for the church and providing for the church, not about him walking around with a stick, whacking it. There's a movie, one of my favorite movies that my wife and I like to watch. It's called The Quiet Man, John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. He goes back, he's an American boxer that goes back to his own home in Ireland. And there's a scene at the end after he's gotten married to Maureen O'Hara, and there's a kind of a conflict between them in their marriage. And one of these ladies runs up to him and hands him. She goes, here is a stick to beat the lovely lady. You know, that's not what you do, man. And that's not what Christ is doing. He's not chasing his church down, his bride down with a stick. It's care. That's all lead-in for the next statement. What were the husbands need? Ephesians chapter 5. It says, 
verse 25, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. How has he loved the church? He's laid his life down for the church. He's dedicated to do what's in the best interest of the church. Boy, that... Now, if you go back to the issue of women submitting, I'm going to suggest that I think kind of the issue of women submitting means if your husband really is functioning his head properly and he's loving, she's supposed to submit and let him do that. But it also kind of presupposes that the husband's going to do what God told him to do, and that is he needs to love his wife. He needs to love his wife like Christ has loved the church. He should be dedicated to her. He should be looking out for what she needs, not what, hey, hon, I know you needed this, but I had a fishing trip planned. Well, I would never do that, but, you know, I was going to go over that. I don't know what, what Tim would do that. other than that. I'm going to, I'll use one that I've run into conflict with lately. I was going to go for a run. I was going to go for a long run today. I was going to go see, I was going to think about running eight or 10 miles today. And my wife's like, I have this that needs to get done and this to get done. Oh, but my health, hon, I've got to look out for my health. You know, you have to learn and say, you know, there's things that she needs. Things that I'm caring for her. And husbands, that's your responsibility. Now, so we've, we've, we've looked at three, three groups. We've looked at Judah. What was their need? They were coming under a curse because they weren't doing what God dictated. That has nothing to do with us because we're in a different situation. Husbands and wives. I always think these are really interesting situations. Because, does the husband ever have a responsibility to submit to his wife? I would say yes. If my wife exercises her spiritual gift, I could say, Woman, mind your place. No, I don't say that to her. If she's exercising her spiritual gift towards me, I should submit to that. Or, Sometimes it's not even just a spiritual gift. Sometimes it's just the fact that my wife thinks of something that wasn't even on my radar. And I'm like, thank you for pointing that out. But sometimes I'm like, hmm, now I got to think about that. I didn't want to have to think about that, but now I got to think about that. But I'm thank I thank you for actually drawing, bringing my attention to something. Trust God brought that woman into my life for a reason because she's going to help me. She's going to help balance me in the same way that I trust God helps me balance her in certain ways. The husbands, likewise, it says husbands love your wives. Does that mean wives don't have to love their husbands? No. I just think he's pointing out that there's a special need. The wives have a special need to submit, and the husbands have a special need to love. In other words, don't be selfish, guys. Love the wives. And wives, don't be that independent person that I don't need anybody. No. Submit. Let the husband love you in this way. I think those are special needs that if you look in the context, and I think we look at the rest of Scripture, if we were going to teach through this in more detail, I would take you back to Genesis 3, because part of the curse on the woman in Genesis chapter 3 is that her desire shall be against her husband. Her desire is going to be, I don't need to do what you said, and I don't... I'm married to you, but I don't really need to, I don't really need you. <laughs> I don't really need you. And I actually, I've heard wives, not here in our church, but I've heard women say that, you know, I, I'm at a point in my life, I don't really need a man. <laughs> I just, I just don't really know if I need them. You know, and there's sometimes they're married because sometimes, and maybe it's our fault as guys, but I've heard women say that 
Sometimes we are more bothered than we are worth. <laughs> anyway, but there's a point, and you understand because of that part of that curse in that way, that that uh, wives had a special need to submit because they're trying to push back. The other side, I think by nature of the fall, men, just like all of us as human beings, we have a tendency to be selfish. So, needs. Determining, looking at the context, reading the statement that's there. It's easy to read the, state, the statement, but then determine, well, what in the context? What's the need then? Why is this being told them? Go back and determine the need. If it's natural for us to be loving, why would he have to tell us to love? If it's natural to submit, why would he have to tell the women to submit? Because there's a need behind the command, behind the instruction that he gives them. How about the Corinthians? What did the Corinthians need? What did the Thessalonians need? And what did John's readers need? So let's look at these three. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> we have a, a situation. I'm going to go back up to verse 1. It said, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and an immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant, and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, even though I'm absent in body, but I'm present in spirit, I've already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, with his character, with the way he would do it, when you are assembled, when you all get together, and I with you in, in the spirit, and with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In simple terms, and this is borne out by the following context, this church had the need that they had a man that was involved in an incestuous, immoral relationship, of course, and their need was they needed to put him out of the church. Now, the thing is, is that we, that we sometimes miss when we read that is, he says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So clean out that old leaven that you may be new. You understand what he's saying is, you let this go on in here, and you become you tolerate a, a, a sin issue in the church that is prevalent like this, that is well known. Guess what? It spreads. My wife makes pizza dough almost every week. And she opens her little thing of, of, of yeast and she puts that little bit of yeast, mixes it into the stuff to kind of get it going. And it just goes in as little flakes. And next thing you know, you got this thing that's all bubbly and foamy in there. And then you mix it in, you put it in the dough, and pretty soon that dough that would otherwise just be flat is puffed up and you've got to knock it down and it puffs up again. This is what yeast does. And he says, it spreads. Does that mean everybody in the church is going to become immoral in this way? No, it might encourage some immorality. But it might just encourage other people to go, look at how tolerant we are. Hey, look, at, we, can, we can tolerate other stuff. And next thing you know, you're tolerating a whole bunch of messes. A whole bunch of sin. So their need was to put somebody out. That's a harsh thing that he's talking to them to do. 
It's not something that a church should ever take lightly. It's not something where we go on a hunt looking for stuff like this. This was something that was very apparent in the church, apparent enough that the church was arrogant about putting up with it. If it was something that was kind of hidden and maybe only one or two people in the church knew about it, well, then Paul wouldn't know about it. And, well, it, they wouldn't be arrogant over the matter. So you have to determine what's the need. Well, the need ultimately comes back to some omission of arrogance and the, and the issue of this thing spreading. That's the real problem these people have. But then they need to put a person out. That's the way it's going to be addressed. So it's not just getting putting a guy out. It's really, it, the issue really here is an attitude, an attitude that they have towards a sin. Let me ask you this. If you've got a brother that's sinning, and you just choose to just look the other way and not ever do anything about it, they're sinning. We all sin. I know. We could all say that. We all sin. But I, I'm, we're talking about, I mean, they're sinning in something that's affecting other people. Is it loving just to look the other way and just ignore that problem? If it's something that God's brought into your attention that he's allowed you to see, the, the most loving thing to do would be to step in and help the brother to encourage them to make a change for the right reason, not just cut it out, but to help them think right. To think about, this is who God says you are in Christ. God says you're a dead one to the sin nature. Why are you presenting yourself to the sin nature to do this thing? This isn't the way God designed us. You've got, some, you've got better things in your freedom in Christ. If you watch your little kid in the, in the kitchen, Walking towards the stove and reaching out towards the hot stove, you don't stand there and going, "Oh, I just hands off. We just, I don't, I don't want to bug anybody else's life. Let them make their choices." You wouldn't do that. We'd say you're a bad parent if you intentionally let your kid walk over and touch the hot stove. You run and you grab them. Well, in the same terms, if you watch a believer getting themselves mixed up in this stuff, something for you to step in. We don't want to do that. It's very uncomfortable, isn't it? Every time, and it's a, it, maybe it's I'm a pastor, maybe it's just as a believer in the church, I don't know, but I get people that will, they'll say, this is going on. I just like, there's part of me that's like, I don't like conflict. I don't like to confront people. I don't like to have to go talk to people about stuff, but you know what? I love this individual enough. I need to go have this conversation. And you should too. The Corinthian church needed to do it. And if you try to turn a blind eye to it, as Paul said here in Corinth, you turn a blind eye to this stuff, it's just going to spread and it's just going to become worse. It's a serious thing. It's not the way God designed us to be. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. Turn to chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I want you to go back up to verse... 10. It says, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone does not want to work, neither let him eat. That doesn't mean you go over and take food out of his mouth. It just means the church has no obligation to take care of and provide for somebody that refuses to work. That's what he's talking about. For we hear that there are some among you that are leading an undisciplined life, disorderly doing no work at all. In fact, they're busybodies. Instead of working, they're actually working in everybody else's business. 
Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Christ to work in quiet fashion to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of that man. Do not associate or mingle with him so that he might be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. In other words, if you got somebody in the church and they don't want to work, the church is not obliged to, to, to feed them. And you don't. You also do not treat that person like your best buddy and you're going and hanging out with this person that doesn't want to live the way he's doing. But I believe there's another implication. In the passage we just read, there's a statement in there about what happens when you let this go on. And I believe it's that statement in verse 13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. You know, one of the things that happens when you have people that are mooching, people that aren't doing the things that they're supposed to be doing in this way, it makes everybody else go, why am I working so hard? I mean, don't we kind of complain that complain about that a little bit here in our country, don't we? Well, why do I work so hard? I work so hard to make this money, and I got this, and it's hard, and then the government's just going to take it in my taxes, and they're giving away those freeloaders. Isn't that the kind of thing that we think and say? Well, do you know we do the same thing sometimes in the church? We let people be freeloaders in the church, and it can cause people to lose heart, to give up and say, why am I trying so hard? Why am I trying? Why that, that, that person over doesn't do anything. Look, I'm, maybe I'll do that too. And they lose heart. God wants, us, God wants us to care for people. If you've got people that are working, but they still are not able to pay the bills, and it's not because they're buying sports cars and building ridiculously expensive homes or something like that, you know, I stand, no, I don't know. He's just getting carried away with that. No, just kidding. He's not here today. I was going to pick on him with that. No, his place is, his, it's a nice place, but it's very modest, very modest, you know, but you get the point. If people were building these big homes and they can't pay their bills, that's one thing that you need to say, hey, maybe you need to scale your lifestyle back. But you know what? If you've got people that are working hard and they're not able to pay, they're not able to afford what we would call basic standard of living. That is, they cannot feed their family sufficiently. They cannot clothe their family sufficiently. They cannot keep a roof adequately over their family's head. That's a place where the church steps in and helps. But you don't step in and help when you have people, they just don't want to work. We're just going to wait around until the Lord comes back, play Parcheesi or something. Does anybody even play Parcheesi anymore? I don't know. Sorry. I don't know why that came into my head. Sorry about that. Okay. So their need is, again, to deal with a problem in the church. Those guys, the Corinthians were dealing with a problem in the church. These guys have to deal with a problem in the church. It never says to kick the guy out, but it says don't provide, don't care for him is what he's getting at here. Now, how, now let's go over to 1 John. And John's readers then, no one's going to get kicked out of this church either. But I do want to want you to see what he's telling these people. And this might be something where you as a believer maybe need to pay attention to this for yourself, but it might be also something you need to encourage another believer with. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. We've been over this before. This is a, 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 a present imperative that it starts off with in verse 15 when it says, Stop loving the world, neither the things that are in the world. 
If anyone is loving the world, the love for the Father is not in him. Because all that is in the world, the cravings for the flesh. My flesh craves things, doesn't it? Craves nice clothes, comfortable chair, nice mattress to sleep on at night. Craves things like that. Okay, we get that. Good food. So there's cravings for the flesh that it might have. And the cravings for the eyes. Cravings for the eyes. I remember Dan Dalkey always used to call it new paint syndrome. Those people that about every two or three years they got a new car because, well, the, the paint on that last one has begun to fade. New paint syndrome. Get a new one. Shiny. That's just a real basic example. But there's all kinds of ways that we can be what we want. We want to look good. We want people around Royal City to be impressed by us. I still remember back when I bought this little Ford Escape back in 2009, this little thing that has turned over. I, I Seriously, I thank God almost every time I get in that thank you that it's still running at 250,000 miles. And it's not it's not going ding, 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 bing, 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 down. Or it's running well. I'm like, thank you, God. I appreciate that. Anyway, but when I got that, I wasn't impressed by it. I was just very thankful that God provided. But I remember somebody in town go, when they looked at it, Good for you. That's a nice looking vehicle. I'm glad you got something nice looking. Seriously, I was told that by an individual. I was up at the school. It wasn't a teacher up there. It was somebody that just happened to be up there picking up their kids. I was like, you apparently didn't approve my last vehicle. I didn't know that, but that's okay. It didn't bother me. But but there is this, uh, this uh, new pain syndrome thing, as like said Dan said. And then the last one that he brings out here is not only that, um, Lost my place there, verse 16, verse 17, the last part, um, no, verse 16. Oh, and the boastful pride of life. That is, we like to be able to tell everybody else what we've accomplished. And this is like a snake oil salesman that's going to tell you that this stuff's going to fix this and everything. It's going to put hair back on your bald spot up here, and it's going to make your eyes straight, correct that, that poor vision, that kink in your knee, it's gone. And they're going to boast on it, boast on it. Well, that's what he says. That's what people like to do with the world and the things they get in the world, right? They like to take all that stuff in the world and say, guess what? This is it. This is, in fact, I really like this. Um, uh, ben and, and Lindsay, they had youth group uh, several years ago. They had t-shirts that said real life on them. And I like that because that's what Paul says over in 1 Timothy 6. He says, you, you need to tell those that are rich in the world. That's most of us here, right? That's where we are. Um, he says, teach them to not put their hope in these earthly riches. And then he actually says, but to lay hold of the, and in the context, he told Timothy to lay hold of eternal life. But these guys, he doesn't call it eternal life. He calls it the real life. That's the real life. This stuff down here, it's all ephemeral. It's all just, it's here. It's transient. It's rusting. It's falling apart. And he says, you need to look at this everything what it is. And he tells these people, stop loving the world. Sometimes we have to do that in the church. We have to tell people, cut it out. You're supposed to be loving believers, not loving stuff, not loving this system out here. We're not here to fix this system. So quit it. Quit loving the system. Love God. And how do you love the Father? You love his kids. The more you try to love God this way, the less likely you usually are going to end up loving the kids. God's up there going, I'm, I'm looking for it. I'm not seeing the love. I'm not feeling it. Because I don't see you loving my kids. Love each other. Tells you that over in, well, it tells it in, in the first part of chapter 2, but he also especially points it out at the end of chapter 4. Now, 
with all of those things, then I want to ask this next question. Do sometimes we have to modify things when we apply them? Now, we have to be careful here when we say this, because sometimes when people modify stuff, they totally change the interpretation. And you're like, okay, now all of a sudden you've changed totally what the passage meant. But let's take a look at this one. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. My wife's not here today. If she was, I was going to use her as an example. Because Romans chapter 16 says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. I kiss my wife every day. I don't even think that that's what he's talking about here when he says a holy kiss. Because what I would do here, this kind of a holy kiss, probably had more the idea that you came up and embraced a person and laid a kiss probably to their cheek. Now there are... There are Christian religious groups. I don't think that they're believers because they believe in a works and baptism, works salvation, baptismal regeneration. But they're called, and Stan will tell about because Stan has met, known some of these people, but they call them kissers. And the men walk up and the men kiss each other on the lips when they greet each other. And I presume the women do the same thing. And they can come and they can say, look at, Right here, we are obeying Romans 16, 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Is that what he's talking about? Or are you talking about doing this? It is so nice to have you with us today, Kenya. Or, as some of the people do around our church, they come in, the ladies do this especially, the guys occasionally. They come up to a guy, and they give him a hug. The ladies do that with each other. They hug each other. Okay? That's, I would say, in our modern cultural context, that's the way we do this. I met a pastor, oh, 20-some years ago, uh, was over down in the Tri-Cities area, and he'd been a missionary for 20-some years before that in Peru. And he had a friend of his, it was a doctor in Peru that had gotten saved in their ministry, came up here to the States, and they were walking at the Columbia Center Mall together, and they were getting looks left and right. Because this missionary and this, this believing friend of his from Peru, they're walking through the mall holding hands. They're holding hands, and people are looking at them. All of a sudden, it dawns on both of them, wait a second, this is not culturally acceptable here in the United States. This communicates something else. If you had two little boys doing that on the playground, we don't think anything about that, but kind of reach a point that people associate other things. But where they were at in Peru, two men that are friends, nothing inappropriate whatsoever, just good friends. They'll walk around town. They'll walk in the country and they will hold hands. And there's nothing inappropriate about it in that culture. And there are cultures to this day around the world where when men meet each other, they embrace and they kiss each other on the cheek. The only man I kiss on the cheek is my dad. Sorry, guys. No offense. But most of you don't shave smooth enough. No, that's not it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not part of our normal culture here. And so I'm looking at this when he says a, a, a holy kiss. What's he simply saying? That the application of this is whatever in your area is, a, is customary for, for giving a welcoming, warm greeting, acknowledging this person. You do that with one another. 
And if you live in a place where guys go around and give each other a hug when they meet, then do that. That's fine. If it's a handshake the way I grew up, shake it. And don't give me one of those wimpy handshakes either. Now, that was a big deal where I grew up. Men had to give, you had to, it was never a vice grip challenge. It was just always a good firm handshake though among men, you know. No, you don't have to worry about that. But is that, we're changing a little bit, but we're keep, are we keeping, in, are we keeping with the idea that's being communicated in the text? Yeah, we're keeping with the idea that's communicated in the text. Um, I, I, we've got a couple passages here. I'm going to, let's go to Colossians chapter 3. We'll just look at this one here. Colossians 3. What, what do we do with the, the statement here in Colossians 3? And I believe this is one that, that there's a little bit of a modification in what we're doing. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22, it says, Slaves in all things obey those who are your master. Which, which one of you here are slaves? A slave. See, we're not slaves. We don't have slaves. We're not supposed to have slavery here in the United States. I'm not saying it doesn't ever go on in places, but it's not supposed to legally exist. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service or literally with eye service as those that please men, but actually out of sincerity, out of fear of the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord rather than to men knowing that it is from the Lord that you receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve as a slave. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done without partiality. Masters, then give to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Now, it, does this come across directly to us? No, because we don't have slave-master relationship. Does this maybe by a changing of, of what we're looking at, is there an appropriate way to look at this in terms of employers and employees? I would think that maybe there is. That maybe, you know, if you're an employee, remember you're really always working or serving the Lord, and therefore when you serve, he's always keeping an eye on you. So be conscious of that. And don't do it just, you know, I've, I've told you the story. I worked in a warehouse when I was in college, and we'd have kids that stand in there, you know, they got their clipboard, there's two of them, they meet in an aisle, and they stand for 10 minutes talking in an aisle, and pretty soon you hear our boss, Les, click, 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 click your shoes on the concrete floor, and they get back to work. But they'd been goofing off for 10 minutes, standing in an aisle talking. That's why Les had to make regular rounds through that big warehouse to make sure everybody actually was working and not just goofing off. He says, as a Christian, if you were a slave, you don't just work when the master sees you, to keep him happy. Is that something, is there something similar about that, about the way you'd actually function as an employee? I would say there is. Likewise, masters, it says, give to them justice and fairness, knowing that you have a master. In other words, is there, is there maybe a way that that's true if you're an employer? Yeah. Treat your employees with righteousness and fairness in the way that you're going to deal with them. That's still appropriate. It still seems like that would be a right thing to do. They're not your slaves. <laughs> Don't treat them like they're your slaves. But I think this kind of an attitude. So is there a way that this might come across? I would say there probably, there probably is. Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13. I'm not devoting as much time to these last ones as I did the early on, but Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 13. 
the apostle Paul says, remember, and Josh went over this in the, in the, in the first hour that he, that Paul is writing to, um, ethnic Jews who are Christians. I like the way you put that. I always try to figure out, I, I always have a long Christians who have come from a Jewish extraction, ethnic Jews that are Christians. There's an easier way to put it. I like, I got to remember that one, but Hebrews 13, well, these people are still practicing Judaism. And the whole point, and we've been over this in other studies, the whole point is to tell them, you know what? It's time for you to leave Judaism, guys. God's done with it. It's time for you to leave. He's given you time. He didn't kick you right out on day one. He's given you at this time, but by the time Paul writes Hebrews 13, he's given these guys 30 years to transition out. And some of them still have not wanted to. So he says in verse 13, Hence let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach or his ridicule. Outside the camp is telling him, it's time for you to leave Judaism. Now, is, again, is there a way, any way that there might be a modern-day application of this without twisting the text? I would say that when a Christian gets, when a person gets saved, and let's say they've been part of another religious system, whatever that religious system might be, that religious system might be another church that doesn't proclaim the gospel, perhaps. Does God immediately on day one say, that's it, out of that church? And sometimes we grow up with that. person gets saved, it's like, you got to leave that church right now. That church is apostate, or whatever religious system. Now, I think some of these believers did do that kind of thing in, their, in the first century because they were worshiping idols, and that was so contrary to believing in the true God that, yeah, they left the worship of idols. But if you're in something that kind of really looks like Christianity, such as maybe attending a church that doesn't proclaim the gospel, then all of a sudden saying, hey, you can't go to that church anymore, they might not quite get that. And some people, it's like they show up, like first week after getting saved, they're in a good church, and after the road, you ask them, boy, you just never went back to this other church, and they're like, well, they never told me the gospel before. It's the first, only place I'd ever heard the gospel. Oh, well, that's good. But some of them don't recognize that right off the bat. It might take a while, but I think that there's a point at which you need to call them and say, you know what, you need to come someplace where you're fed, where, you're at, where Christianity is actually practiced, where there's, the gospel is proclaimed. You need to, there's a point at which they need to be called out. I have to worry about a Christian that maybe has been saved for 20 years and they're still hanging out in a church, some entity, some religious organization that does not proclaim the gospel. I have to really, there's, I have a lot of questions, let's put it that way. I'm not saying they can't be Christians. I'm just saying I do have questions uh, in some of those situations. Um, we're going to, and, and one of the passages I used was, I already referred to it, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verse 9. Let's go to um, this last one. Here it is. Let's go to this one, 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Just looking around. We don't have any widows in the church today. The early church took care of widows. Okay? They took care of widows because uh, widows didn't inherit their their uh, husband's huh, retirement plan, things like that. And so a lot of times they were well off. And he says in verse 9 here, he says, Let a widow be put on the list 
only if she's not less than 60 years. Now, does that mean that she has to be 60 years old before the church can provide? No, I think the church could provide sooner than that, but she's just not like permanently going to be provided for because he's going to lay down um, some instructions on how to deal with those that were younger. But then he goes on and he says in verse 10, having the reputation of good works, and if she has brought up children, and if she has shown hospitality to strangers, and if she has washed the saints' feet. That's the one I wanted to, because the rest of these we probably can put together. But you know what? We don't wash feet anymore, do we? When was the, well, at home, you, I hope you wash your feet, but we don't do it as a church ritual. There are churches that do that. Churches that have baptism, Lord's Supper, and washing of feet. They believe they have three what they call sacraments. We don't practice that washing one. We could start it just so that widows can be taken on, and you guys can come up here every week and wash my feet, and people can... But I don't think that that's necessary, because what is he really saying when he's talking about washing feet? He's talking about serving. He says, they ought to be women that have the habit, that have the, the custom, the character of one that serves others. And washing feet, which is what Jesus did in the upper room, was how he demonstrated love. And it also was probably, I would say, probably one of the most disgusting, I don't know, maybe your feet are lovely and wonderful and you could be a foot model, but you know, if you're like me, nobody wants to see my feet. And def nobody wants to smell my feet, and no one wants to touch them. It's a disgusting job if you'd stop to think about it. But it was something that, that people did then. And it was showing you that it's the kind of service that isn't just, I will serve the things that are easy and fun to do. I will even serve in the things that are disgusting. Because they still need to be done. And that was the nature. That's the nature of this. So it's a good example of, the fact that yeah, we don't have this practice today, but is there a way that we can understand what's being said here that would be, in one sense, then still applicable for us today? Yes. She has the characteristic of doing even very lowly service. She's not above anything. It's easy for us as Christians to say, I will help with this. I will teach Sunday school. I will lead Bible studies, but don't ask me to run a vacuum and dust. <laughs> Don't ask me to pick up after the messy kids. Fill in the blank, whatever it is. So, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Pay attention who's the audience. Pay attention to whether or not it's specific to that audience and maybe doesn't go beyond that audience. Pay attention to who are you? Do you fit within that context? And lastly... Pay attention to the need. What is necessary? And then when you're reading those things, think, is there a way in which this actually does fit our situation even though we have a different custom today? We don't kiss, we don't kiss each other when we meet. We shake hands. We don't wash feet, but we can still serve. These kind of things like this. This is the way we should be reading our Bible, paying attention to what's happening in the context, identifying the real need, not just always just the, the need that's on the surface. Do this! But what's the underlying need that, that necessitates this? Learning those things. Recognizing that as we read the Bible. And that's not a hard thing to do. Well, unless, unless reading is hard for you and you don't like to read, but if you read, you should be able to do this and pay attention to what's there. And when you do that, able to better understand, appreciate what God's doing, what he's telling you, 
what he maybe has told other people that doesn't apply to you, and you're able to apply it then properly for yourself if that's appropriate, and enjoy God's work rather than something that Tim stood up front and told you, do this or do that, or somebody else told you, do this or do that. We want to do what God says. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together. We're thankful for your word. Thankful that we can look at these examples and we can consider what needs are uh, and how that affects the way we think about application. And that we can think through these types of situations here because uh, we don't want to just be hearers of your word. We don't want to just come to church and learn facts and grow in our knowledge. We want to be those that use what you've given to us in living this relationship together with one another. Because that's your plan and design, is for us to be loving each other. And we're thankful that you give us that opportunity and that privilege of loving each other in so many different ways. Thank you for this time together. And whatever you have in store for us in the remainder of this day, let us go about those things, being mindful of one another and how you might use us to serve others even this very day. And we thank you for it. Amen. Thank you for your attention today.